online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, one of the biggest names in Argentine wine, Dr. Laura Catena, is at the helm of Catena Zapata, a family dynasty. We'll hear what makes her tick and why she's so passionate about old vines, education, and altitude wine. Ask anyone in the wine world about Dr. Laura Catena, and you're sure to hear the same question. Uh, how does she do it? In charge of the family wine dynasty, having taken over from her pioneering father, Nicholas Catena Zapata, uh, she's also a trained emergency room paediatric doctor, working as recently as the pandemic in her adopted city of San Francisco. Catena Zapata is a familiar name to any wine lover. It's range extending from affordable supermarket wines to plot-specific gems traded on the Place de Bordeaux alongside the world's greatest cuvées. Voted the wine world's old vine hero just uh, a month or so ago, uh, Dr. Catena has a passion for old vines and she's a great advocate for altitude winemaking from plots like the Adriana Vineyard nestling in the foothills of the Andes. And uh, I'm delighted to say she joins me now from the United States. Uh, Laura, welcome to the Drinking Hour. Hello, David. Thank you. It's uh, great to uh, see you and hear you. There's so much to talk about. Um, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's tricky to kind of work out what order to put it in. But I think we should sort of start at the beginning, really, and talk a little bit about um, the kind of family and uh, what your father did, uh, because he really uh, set out to improve, enhance the reputation of Argentine wine. And he really succeeded, didn't he? Yes. Well, you know, he grew up in a tiny, tiny little village, less than a thousand people. And, you know, he went to school on a horse. <laughs> and uh, he had this mother, Angelica Zapata. We, we actually have a ni- uh, wine named after her, my grandmother, who I never met because she died young. But she was the local headmistress of the, the this little country school. And she was a, a fierce educator. My, my father says she was a better uh, teacher than mother because she <laughs> she didn't cook much for her kids. She was always teaching any student that needed extra help. They could come to the house every evening, every weekend. And he grew up in this family where education was so important. And I think that's a big part of why he was able to do what he did in Argentina, because, you know, he uh, went to the U.S. Uh, as a visiting scholar to UC Berkeley in the early 80s, partly because, you know, Argentina was during the military government. My uncle had been kidnapped. My father was very worried for our family, for, you know, what was happening in Argentina. There were bombs uh, put on all the time. You know, I would walk to school and there was a person with a machine gun in the corner. And so my mm. father said, let's leave for a little bit, um, and he continued to run uh, the winery uh, by fax. They didn't have computers back then. And the wonderful thing about going to uh, the U.S. Uh, was that he saw this revolution that was happening in the Napa Valley. He heard about the judgment of Paris, led by, by uh, I'm sure you knew Stephen Spurrier, one of my 
wine world heroes, just this oh, yeah. incredible person. Uh, and, you know, what was amazing about Stephen was that he did this judgment of Paris where, you know, the California wines were compared to the best French wines, but then he continued to support that concept for the rest of the world. And, you know, he, he and I had this incredible conversation with my father, with Stephen about how, you know, what California had done to show that there was Grand Terroir, uh, you know, Grand Cru sites in California, we could also do in Argentina. And really, that's what my father set out to do. He said, I'm going to show the world that we can make, uh, you know, Grand Cru worthy uh, wines out of Mendoza. And uh, it, it was this vision that, that you know, basically uh, led everything we did and that still inspires us today. You know, we're, we're doing the same thing with the same vision that my father had, you know, whatever, uh, three decades ago. And uh, your father has stepped back, but um, he's uh, thankfully still very much around. And I think you, yes. you talk to him most days, don't you? Oh, absolutely. We are talking every day. And, um, you know, I live between California and Argentina. I go back and forth every other month. And, uh, you know, now with, with communication, I'm talking to the winemaking team, to the commercial team, to uh, we have um, some uh, team members who live abroad. We have a few people in Europe and Asia and Latin America. My father is mostly based in Argentina. He travels a lot less than I do. He doesn't like to travel. So <laughs> I say, okay, you get to not travel if you don't want to. I will do this for the family. And uh, and it's a good arrangement. I, I I do a lot of work over the phone. I do a lot of tasting virtually, uh, all these things that are now permitted by technology. But my favorite thing is being at the winery in Mendoza with my father, making the blends. You know, we make all the blends for all our wines because I always say to people, the one guarantee I can give you as a family winery is that I like the wines we make. And if I don't like a wine, we, we don't release it. We don't sell it. And so my father and I uh, love sitting with the winemakers, making the blends. Uh, and and my, my really, really favorite thing is planting vineyards. I, I have kind of an addiction with uh, finding a good site and, and planting a vineyard. And, uh, you know, it's you think, oh, well, isn't she spoiled? She likes to plant vineyards. But um, in Argentina, we we find it a little easier to find a place to plant a vineyard. It's it's a bit less regulated than, let's say, in California, in, in Europe even. It's, you know, most of the vineyard land is already planted. In Argentina, we have so much land, you know, from north to south, you know, 2,000 kilometers worth of land that could be planted with a vineyard. So, um, it, it's actually very exciting to make wine there because, you know, you have the traditional areas like the Uco Valley, which is, you know, pretty highly planted. But then you have places in Patagonia and Salta and La Rioja. We have a place called La Rioja where you can plant vineyards and where there's some really exciting terroir that has yet to be discovered. So tell us a bit about uh, the landscape, the terroir that uh, so inspired uh, your father to... Uh, transform the the image of uh, your country's wines. Um, just give us um, a, a sense of place, paint a picture yes, for us. Of course. Well, I mean, the first thing that my father thought he needed to do in order to make these, you know, Grand Cru worthy wines was to bring the technology to Argentina. And so he he brought the stainless steel tanks, the best French oak barrels. But then he he pretty quickly realized that it was all about the terroir. And, and that is a truth. You cannot make great wine from a bad vineyard. Impossible. Uh, you can ruin 
good grapes, but you cannot make a great wine without the right terroir. And what's really exciting about our terroir is that, you know, Mendoza is my region. It would be like saying California, you know, it's, it's where 70% of the wines are made is a high altitude region. So the vineyards are between 3000 and 5,000 feet elevation. So, you know, around 800 meters to 1500 meters. And what that means is that as you go up, you get cooler climate and more sunlight. And sunlight is very important for the vine because this is how you get, you know, beautiful ripeness uh, with, with good acidity. So if you have lots of sunlight and it's not too hot, then you get, you know, complex flavors and you don't lose your acids, which is what happens when it's too hot. And you get, a, you know, a nice alcohol, but not too much alcohol. So it is really kind of heaven for winemaking. And we also have these really well-drained soils because there are alluvial soils that were formed when the glaciers, you know, when the Andes were covered by glaciers during the various ice ages, these glaciers melted. And so they left all these stones that are covered in limestone, you know, this calcium carbonate that is, you know, in, in so many parts of the world, people think it's the source of, uh, you know, minerality or all these great qualities, but good drainage is essential because when you have good drainage, you get natural low yields. Anytime something happens naturally in wine or perhaps in life, it, it turns out better. You know, when you force things upon a vineyard, uh, upon a terroir, you do green harvest. You know, when you remove grapes so that you reduce the, the yields artificially, the wine will be less good. And so what's really special about, you know, the very good sites in Mendoza is that you have, you know, perfect, everything's perfect, good sunlight, good drainage, which means also that you can farm organically so easily because you don't have pests. A, a lot of pests come from, you know, too much moisture. And um, in this place, it's, it's kind of magical because you can uh, make these, you know, well-balanced, not too much alcohol, good flavors, wines uh, without many diseases in the vineyard. I have wanted to go to the uh, Adriano Vineyard, having met you and seen pictures of it uh, some years ago uh, in London. Uh, I finally got there a month or so ago, and it is, yes. you know, awe-inspiring. It's beautiful. There's a purity to the air. There's an extraordinary brightness to the light. Um, it's a, a magical place, and you have the whole uh, vista is is framed, yeah. obviously, by by the Andes. It is just a place takes your breath away isn't it yeah it's it, it's really special you know I go there so often and there isn't one time that I don't get there and have this kind of you know spiritual experience of you know hearing the sounds of nature you know there's no airplanes going over you there's you know the occasional car every 30 minutes you you hear the car because the rest of the time you're not hearing anything and you hear the birds you hear the leaves you really feel like you're living in another time. Yeah, it's very special. Also, it, there's no pollution because we don't have a big city nearby. Uh, so the, the, the air is very clear. At night, you can see all the stars. And it, it's, a, it's a very magical place, yes. Mm, it really is. I, I planted a tree while I was there, actually. It's a, a oh. really, it's a, a strange kind of brush-looking tree that apparently is really important to the ecosystem there and yeah. and your team are are putting uh sort of putting bits back almost into the the landscape there yeah. at, at the moment that that's uh, i i guess very important to you as uh, and to yeah. to, to, Katena, to Pata as a as a business 
Yes. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that when I started looking at sustainability, at how to make these, you know, really unforgettable, distinctive wines there, I started hearing, you know, about organic farming and sustainable and biodynamic. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, biodynamic, to, to take an example, it's something that originated in Austria, Germany in the 19th century, this theory. Why would I be using this in Mendoza by the Andes? You know, when, you know, I don't think Rudolf Steiner came to Mendoza ever, you know, and the microbes in the soil are different according to the place, to the climate, to the plants. Uh, we have owls that don't live on trees, they live underground. So when we were doing our sustainability protocol, we had to preserve their underground sites. So make sure that these were protected. Um, we have birds that don't eat grapes. They're perfectly adapted to our terroir. They eat insects and they're very helpful. And we put these little boxes and they move into the boxes. The first day the box gets filled. And so what I realized was that I needed to understand why had the nature in this particular place evolved in such a, a balanced way that we have this ecosystem that is running on its own. And how can I encourage this and preserve it rather than modify it? But using our own um, ecosystem wisdom, you know, and, and that's what I call, you know, science to preserve nature and culture. So you have to study your birds, your owls, your insects, your cover crops, your native cover crops, um, and uh, the customs of the place, you know, which are this mix of, you know, the native peoples that lived here hundreds of years ago that created the canals that we use to irrigate our vineyards. If there weren't for the native peoples establishing these canals, we would not have vines in Mendoza. Then come these European immigrants, you know, which include my great grandfather from Italy, who bring some of this uh, knowledge from Italy to a place that's so different because we have a lot less rain than he had in Le Marque where he came from. And, and so how did, did these immigrant groups learn from the people who had been there for such a long time and incorporate that knowledge into making these wines that our family is making today. So how do you preserve all that? I, I'm giving you the, the long answer to what our philosophy is, which is learn from outside, uh, but then use that knowledge to preserve what you have, your local customs, uh, your local ecosystem. And, and part of you know, people like you coming to Argentina planting a tree is that we were saying, okay, so, um, do we want to plant exotic species, you know, from another country? Or do we want to plant more of these native species that are so well adapted, that absorb carbon, um, that give some shade to the animals that live here, to the people? You know, we need some shade too. And, and then um, we said, okay, let's have all our guests reduce a little bit their carbon footprint of, you know, getting on a plane and, you know, getting in a car by planting some trees. And then, you know, we, we're solving more than one problem in this way. And we've, we're planning to plant thousands of trees with all our guests. If every guest plants a tree, you know, that adds to a number. Yeah, and it was great fun as well, just to think that uh, <laughs> whilst traipsing around the vineyard, I was actually giving a little bit back as well. Um, it was uh, yeah. it was a, a lovely moment. Um, science is, um, you know, really important uh, to you in your approach uh, to the wine business, isn't it? Yes, because I think that we cannot make rapid progress 
without science. So, you know, if you think of the Cistercian monks in Burgundy, you know, they had hundreds of years to do trial and error and figure out, okay, I plant this here, I plant it there, this is how I make the wine. We don't have hundreds of years because, you know, this climate change is happening so quickly. And also all these innovations, uh, these changes in society are happening so quickly that the threat to the vineyard life and to our, our winemaking traditions is not just coming from climate change. You know, we're having less water, yes, and more heat, but it's also coming from culture changing. You know, a lot of the children are not learning with their parents because in the olden days, children worked in the vineyard with their parents. Then, very appropriately, they eliminated childhood labor so that children could go to school. That was a good thing, but I don't think it was a good thing to not let the children go to, to the vineyard in the summer with the parents. When I was a kid, I always harvested because that's what you did. My father knows how to prune. He knows how to do all the work in the vineyard. And so for sure, I think that, actually, I think they should allow children to work a few hours over the weekend, five-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. And, and I think that a lot of people do this, but um, you know, this growing up in the vineyard is no longer happening. And a lot of these children now want to go to the city because they think they will have better opportunities. And what I'm trying to do is figure out how can we have such a great lifestyle for the people who work in the vineyard that they don't feel this compulsion to go to the city. But back to your question about science, you know, it's not what Laura Catena thinks that people want. We need to study what do people need and what do they want in order to stay in the vineyard. And so we actually started this whole uh, survey of people in the vineyard, you know, anonymous, because if they know you're, you know, you're seeing their opinion, you know, they might say something different. And it was really interesting because for first thing, people would like to have a house. And so we actually provide housing for anybody that's willing to live in the vineyard. We provide a house. The second thing they wanted was opportunities for their children with education. So anybody that lives in our vineyard, we will get their child to whatever school of their choice they need their child to go to. So if they need to go to the city that's one hour away, we will provide transportation for that child to go to that school. But then I said, what are other things that are important to people? And one thing that we thought people might like is to have um, a piece of land to grow fruits and vegetables, because that is what I, Laura Catena, would like to have if I'm living in this vineyard, right? Yeah, it me too. <laughs> Only, right? Wouldn't you want that? Yeah, so we gave absolutely. people seeds and we gave them access to all the water they wanted, which, you know, water is very valuable. So we said, you can have water for this whole hectare. You can grow all your own food. It turns out that that was only important for about 20% of the people living in the vineyard. And you know what? It's not my uh, call to tell them this is important for you. You know, things are important to people individually. So we found that about 20% of the people wanted to have their own animals, their own chickens, their own fruits and vegetables. The rest of the people, do you know what was the most important thing they wanted? Go that on. they didn't have? Good internet. So the mm. thing is, in the countryside in Argentina, the internet is very bad and it's very expensive to put a new internet tower. So I had to make this decision, a very costly decision. You know, do I get, you know, very high speed internet and what I was told was that, listen, if we can't watch the shows we like, we're going to move to the city. And I said, hey, that's fair enough. So we made this big investment in all our vineyards, <laughs> this really ugly internet tower. 
And now we can actually get a lot of people to live in the vineyards and for the children to do their schoolwork, they need good internet. And, and that, that, that was a very compelling argument. You know, you cannot have a good education today without good internet access. So anyhow, what was interesting about using science for this problem is that often you think you know what people want and most of the time you're wrong. You know, you need to survey people scientifically, anonymously to find out what they want. And, you know, that's a human example, but the work we've done studying the microbes in the soil, studying the, the populations of Malbec that only exist in Argentina that have been lost in Europe, uh, studying grafted versus ungrafted vines. We have 90% of our vines are ungrafted. Nobody understands how we pull it off because we do have phylloxera in Argentina, mm. but it doesn't propagate. So there's so many things to study. And I think that if you want to make a wine that stands with the best of the world, which is my father's vision, it's still our vision, you know, that our Argentine wines be up there with the best of the world, you know, the, the uh, Stephen Spurrier's Judgment of Paris made in Argentina, we need to study each vineyard because it's not in every hectare that you can make these great wines. And so you have to study them over years to understand, you know, where is that small parcel of the vineyard that can give me an extraordinary wine. And I know you've done work with the Catena Institute. You mentioned microbes and soils and uh, uh, and root stocks and or, well, uh, natural roots and so forth. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, I know you're particularly passionate about Argentina making the most of what it has um, and what's unique yeah. to it in terms of uh, the evolution of different uh, grape varieties uh, yeah. within Argentina. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, one of, one of the players here is Old Vines uh, and Malbec. And there was a time, you know, after Malbec was growing, you know, the sales were 30% up every year and everybody in Argentina was trying to export Malbec. And then came this kind of softening of the trend. And I remember all the journalists were asking, what's the next thing for Argentina? And uh, I think they, they had seen this Shiraz phenomenon and they were thinking we needed to come up with a, a new variety. And a lot of the producers in Argentina were starting to answer, you know, Bonarda or, you know, Blends or Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay or, you know, Torrontes. You know, I'm not a business person. I studied medicine and then biology. And, you know, I learned how to make wine from my father and, and the team at our winery. Um, and I said, uh, why do we have to have a new thing? You know, nobody's asking chocolate producers to come up with a new chocolate or nobody's asking Earl Grey tea producers. You know, you're you're in, in England. You probably have one tea. That's the tea that you always like to drink. You know, nobody's asking you to pick a new tea because mm. you're accustomed to this. So I thought, you know, we have this genetic diversity of Malbec, you know, it's, it's like the potato for Peru, like we have the equivalent of that, all this genetic diversity in Argentina, all these massa selections planted, uh, this beautiful wine that has great character, great aromatics and these soft tannins. So it's power and, and velvet, you know, it's, 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 it's power and softness, which I think is a very attractive quality for a, a drink. And so why are we having to find something new? You know, when, when this is, is really a classic for us uh, and something that, that we have championed for hundreds of years. And so I, I decided I was going to start telling people, no, you know, it's just more Malbec. But, but I did admit at that moment that, 
we needed to tell people more about Malbec. We needed to show people that uh, Malbec from different regions tasted different, from different terroirs, from different altitudes. And uh, we have a, a line of wine called Catena Appellation, which comes from a specific region and has a specific flavor. Um, I also started talking a lot about these old vines, the ungrafted vineyards, this genetic diversity we have from Malbec, which is kind of an island effect phenomenon. Because you know how when you go to the Galapagos, why does the Galapagos have that diversity? Because it's in an island. And they didn't bring in pests from the rest of the world that killed all the native species, and they didn't bring too many exotic species. And partly it's because it was so remote. Argentina, because of its politics and economics, has been closed in many ways. There wasn't vine material coming from uh, other countries, you know, Europe or North America for 100 years between Phylloxera and the 1990s, nothing came in. And what that created was the preservation of this genetic diversity. We didn't have clones of Malbec. We didn't have clones of Cabernet Sauvignon. We didn't have clones of Bonarda. It was all genetically diverse. And now in Europe, they're trying to preserve these genetically diverse vineyards, but they don't have so many of them because there's not that many old vine vineyards left in the world. Yet in Argentina, you know, partly it was one of those blessings coming from this isolation. We have this diversity and this is something I'm very passionate about, uh, but we, we don't just have it for Malbec. We have it again for Bonarda, this variety that's, you know, it's from, from Savoie, but mostly it exists in Argentina, it makes a beautiful fruity wine, a little lighter than Malbec. We have this Torrontes, which is, you know, in a way the native grape of Argentina, because although it comes from European varieties, the cross happened in Argentina. Um, and we have the Criollas. We also have these really beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon selections. Um, I mean, we have Tempranillo Serra. We have all these European varieties that have been in Argentina for hundreds of years. And to me, this is uh, something that needs to be preserved. Uh, and it's often living in these old vine vineyards, which is, is kind of a second reason to preserve an old vine vineyard. One of the reasons is simply to preserve it because why should you pull it out just because it's lower producing? It's, it's you know, we don't kill people as they get older because, <laughs> you know, older people give us wisdom. They yeah. take care of their grandchildren. They, you know, the, asking my father a question you will always get a wiser answer that if you ask me or you ask anybody else, he has a perspective that nobody else has that is based on all this experience. And old vines actually on, on difficult years with difficult climate will do better than young vines. And in addition to that, they are home to all this genetic diversity that needs to be reproduced. So uh, I, I'm a big believer in, in preserving old vine vineyards um, even when they're lower producing. Um, and, uh, and I think I, I love the old vines movement because, you know, it is more expensive to, sometimes, you know, because some old vine vineyards are highly producing, but most of them will produce less than a young vineyard. And so there's an economic decision to be made. But if consumers prize old vine vineyards and they're willing to pay a little bit more, we're not talking about double the price. We're talking about, you know, maybe one more pound per bottle. That would probably cover the cost of the lower yield. And so if consumers choose to drink from an old vine, that allows a producer like me to say, okay, you know what? I can charge a little more for this uh, because the consumers care and let's preserve this vineyard. And anyhow, that, I, I'm really excited about getting this old vine hero award because it, now I get asked about it a lot more and I get to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you are an old vine hero. I was on the 
panel that uh, uh, put together the shortlist. <laughs> and then, of course, you were it was voted on by uh, followers of, of uh, the old vine movement, as you say. But um, it was uh, a, a great uh, accolade and, and, and richly deserved. And I always say to people who are into the, to wine, but maybe don't know that much about the impact of old vines. Um, I genuinely believe you can taste it, can't you, in the wine? It, it, it produces yeah. a different yeah. kind of more refined wine i'm I'm convinced yeah you know it's interesting because i find that old vines will make a wine that's a little bit lighter it's you know it's it's almost like how it an old wine is always so much better than a young vine wine you know i love all kinds of wines i like fresh i like old vintages but if you ask me what what is your favorite favorite wine it will always be an old vintage there is you know that kind of softness and the what we call the tertiary aromas that that those kind of aromas that go on and on and on and every time you put your nose to the glass they're slightly different and and they're also uh, disappearing you know this is one of those things i love about old wine is that you know if you start drinking it and you wait half an hour you've lost some of the aromas with the younger wines the aromas stay longer and i love the fact that it's you know it's it's there and then it's no longer there and and there's all this surprise from an old wine i find that old vine wines have some of that in a young wine that that kind of lightness that delicateness that um that fleeting beauty you know and uh i totally agree with you that there's there's a particular characteristic to to old vine wine and what is it about malbec apart from the fact that you've got lots of it uh, and it's argentinian <laughs> although it's of course not it's french but it's kind of owned by the argentinians yeah. now i think um what is it yeah. do you think that makes malbec so special because you've written a whole book about malbec haven't you yeah, yeah, yeah. We we wrote an illustrated book about the history of Malbec and the terroir of Malbec with uh, Alejandro Ijil, our, our winemaker of, you know, 20-something years. Um, so I think that Malbec is a variety and a flavor that's here to stay because it's delicious. Uh, and you know what I was saying before about the intensity of aromas? It's got beautiful fruit aromas. It's got natural vanilla. This is a really interesting fact. So if you make Malbec in uh, cement or stainless steel, not a drop of oak, and I give you a bottle of that to taste, you, David, who will have an experienced palate, will tell me this has oak because it has natural vanilla. We've done this experiment a million times. So it's kind of cool. You can actually get that, that touch of vanilla that's so attractive without using oak. And so I think Malbec has a beautiful aroma. And then it has these smooth tannins that, are related to the polysaccharides. So Malbec has more polysaccharides than other varieties. And polysaccharides are sugar-like molecules, but they're not carbohydrates. So they, they don't increase the calories. They, they don't turn into bad stuff in your body, but they give this kind of soft feeling. And so Malbec can taste different from cool climates. It will go more in the floral direction, in the violets. From warmer climates, it'll have more black fruit, uh, maybe more of this vanillin aromatic. But it will always have uh, these uh, potent aromatics and the smooth tannins. Uh, so the, the aromatics might change a little bit, you know, more spicy, less spicy, but always these velvety tannins, at least Argentine Malbec. I believe that these selections we have in Argentina have been lost in Europe and 
certainly the wines I've had from Cahors seem to be a little more tannic. But if you review the old French texts from the 19th century, they actually say that you must add Malbec to Cabernet to soften it. So I think this combination of power and soft is the characteristic of Malbec and why I think Malbec is here to stay. It's been around for over 2000 years. Hopefully it will be around for another 2000 years because it's, it's, a, it's a good flavor. It tastes good. You know, the same reason why I think Earl Grey will be around in 2000 years, uh, hopefully chocolate, unless we destroy the environment, then the, a lot of these things will disappear. But you know, why do we like roses? Because it's the human nose is, likes that kind of aroma. Um, the, the smell. So I, th I think Malbec is just a very attractive combination of aroma and flavor. And that's why um, it's, it's popular and that's why it will last for a long time, hopefully. It's been a, an amazing success story, uh, most especially, you know, in the UK, but, you know, globally uh, for Argentina and for the, the country's winemakers. Um, the style um, has evolved in recent years, though, hasn't it? Yeah, so... You know, there was a time at the kind of in the early 2000s where I think there was this, this temptation of putting a lot of oak on Malbec. And, you know, this was kind of a worldwide phenomenon uh, of the new world using a lot of oak and the old world. I mean, the, the Bordeaux the Grand Cru's were using more oak as well. And there was this, this kind of love of vanilla that was going on in the world. And everybody was putting a lot of oak and also harvesting late so that you had you know, these riper flavors. And I think this trend kind of came through Argentina. But what also happened at the same time is that a lot of the new vineyards were being planted in the cooler climate areas, which were pioneered by my father. You know, there used to be vineyards in some parts of the Uco Valley. In fact, my grandfather, my nonno, that's how I called him because it's grandfather in Italian. He used to love the part uh, of the Uco Valley in the South called Altamira or La Consulta because he thought that's where we could make the best Malbec. My father pioneered vineyards in this place called Gualtajari, almost 5,000 feet elevation, where most people thought it was too cool to ripen grapes. And it turned out it wasn't because we had all this sunlight. And so as we were going into this cooler climate, we had this natural high acidity. So in the olden days, you would make Malbec from the warmer climates, lower altitudes, and you would acidify. Now, most of the new vineyards being planted were either in this new area that my father discovered, which today is the most expensive area, Guadalajari. If you want to buy a vineyard there, it will cost you 20 times more than anywhere else. It's, it's you know, it's our, our Grand Cru site. Uh, and then even in the southern part of the Uco Valley, you know, south is cooler for Argentina. So you have vineyards being planted in cooler regions. So I think this fresher style of Malbec is related not just to using less new oak, but also to a lot of the wine coming from these cooler climate areas uh, that um, were already known, but where most of the vineyards were planted in the warmer areas over the last you know, 25 years, most of the vineyards have been planted in the cooler areas. So yes, for sure, I think there's a fresher style, uh, less alcoholic, more uh, food friendly, 
um, related to these two phenomena. Yeah, and I love it. I think it's a, a definite um, step up in terms of of that um, uh, sort of uh, yeah. that sense of place that comes through that freshness, uh, which really makes sense. As I said earlier, when you you stand in somewhere yeah. like the Adriana Vineyard, and and it kind of the wine yeah. makes a, yeah. a huge amount of sense, which is why it's it's so lovely to to yeah. to go to the. The, the place that it's uh, yeah. it's born um yeah. uh, go on and, and the, wait Debbie, i just want to make an additional point so the other interesting thing is that in these cool climate regions we've been doing temperature measurements and it's actually gotten a, a touch cooler in the last 20 years oh. whereas we've got this climate change thing happening in the rest of the world so we do have less water that is a fact and that's a big problem for us but in the uko valley the climate has gotten a little bit cooler or the same in some places. And this is related to this microclimate of altitude. So one thing that I'm talking a lot about is how a solution to climate change for vineyards is going into higher altitude. And I think this is something interesting mm. to wine drinkers out there that, you know, hopefully wine will be here for a very long time because we can plant now in these high altitude areas or in England, Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, where you can now Who'd have uh, thought make it a wine. few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, in, in yeah. terms of the the wines uh, that you create, you have a very experienced uh, head winemaker, Alejandro, uh, who you mentioned as a, a co-author of that book on uh, on Malbec, and and he presides over a a, a, a significant sized team um, d- doing the the viticulture and um, and the winemaking. Um, how involved do you get in the wines? Very involved. Because, you know, it's first of all, because it's fun and I like doing it. Um, When I started working with my father, he was so happy because he is rather shy. Although if you're talking one on one to him, he is the best conversationalist. But the thought of getting on a plane and talking to 100 people at a wine tasting was not was a bit terrifying for him and and he also thinks his english is not good which i think is just a ploy to get me to to travel more and <laughs> him less because his english is very good i need to be involved in the wine for for me to decide to plant in a new place i need to be passionate about that place well, that's why i often say that if you don't like wine you're not going to be able to make a great wine you know i have gone to some wineries where the wine owners don't drink much wine. Mm. That is rare, mm-hmm. but it does happen. And that person is not going to make a great wine. So I do think that the family members should be involved because I'm going to be there forever. You know, our winemaker could move on. Although this one, I don't think is moving on. He's too much in love <laughs> with working, you know, with our vineyards and our family. We've had so much fun with him. And he's, he, you know, a lot of people who work at Gadena become you know, family members in, in many ways because they're so committed to what we're trying to do to elevate Argentine wine. So, yeah, I, I'm very involved in the blends. Uh, I'm not in the day-to-day, uh, you know, so when I'm in the winery, I'm tasting barrels and I'm tasting, uh, you know, through fermentations, but mostly my involvement is in the final blends. And we do altitude blends where we blend Malbec from, you know, 3,000 feet to 5,000 feet. And, you know, depending on the vintage, we use more, one more for the, than for the other. For wines like Adriana, you know, it's coming from a tiny little parcel. There's not much winemaking to be done. However, I like to taste these wines because one big decision is when to take it out of the, the barrels. Even if you don't have new oak, that's a very big decision. You know, how long in barrel, how long in bottle? How, when are we going to release the wines? You know, 
Um, so, and then what I get very, very involved in is all the viticulture because, you know, when you plant the vineyard, you know, how do you decide what to plant? You know, the first decision is what can I sell? So you should not plant a wine that you can't sell because, well, that's a very expensive decision. On the other hand, you know, um, should we plant Pinot Noir? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. And my father and I love drinking Pinot Noir from Burgundy. And we also like Pinot Noir from other parts of the world. And we said, you know, let's see if we can make great Pinot Noir at high altitude in Argentina. And now I have a, a wine called Domenico that's getting raving reviews. I cannot keep up with the demand. I mean, it's very expensive, but I, I sell it all. I make very little. And I really wish I had planted more Pinot Noir <laughs> 25 years ago because with Pinot Noir, age of the vineyard is very important for quality. So now I'm having to plant more vineyards so that 20 years from now, I can be making a little bit more than I'm making now. So um, all these decisions I am very involved in because they're not you know, uh, easy decisions. You have to see what can I sell? What, what can make a great wine? Usually if you can make something that tastes wonderful, that ages well, you will be able to sell it. Um, but, it, it, but you know, do you, do you plant Malbec? Right now in Argentina, most people would tell you just plant Malbec because that's what sells the easiest. But I'm thinking, you know, what will I be selling 20 years from now? And actually I'm planting quite a bit of Pinot Noir. We're planting a lot of Cabernet Franc because we think that Cabernet Franc with Malbec is a great blend. It, it, it works really, really well. Oh, Cabernet uh, Franc so, from Argentina yeah, is one of my involved. favorite wines. I think it's got an amazing uh, presence in Argentina. Yes. It has, it's, it, I, it's, uh, I don't know if it's soil, if it's altitude, it's probably all of those things. But uh, there is, uh, I think uh, altitude Cabernet Franc from Argentina is super exciting at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. All of this begs the question, you're, you're clearly so passionate about wine, about producing um, in, uh, in, in your part of the world. And uh, you've been in the vineyard since you were a child, you know, learning from your father. And yet you studied medicine. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, you know, I, I, this is terrible. I thought when I was growing up, I thought that only loser kids went to work with their, their family business. I know this sounds awful because now I'm trying to get all the grandkids in the family and nobody pays any attention to me. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite desperate to have the next generation, you know, starting. I mean, I have a little interest, uh, but I thought I want to help the world. You know, if I want to help the world, I will be a doctor because this is what will allow me to help people all over the world. I wanted to be a traveling doctor, helping people, you know, in, in, in less privileged parts of the world. And I, I didn't think I could help anybody with wine. First of all, I, I, although I loved wine, you know, because I grew up in a wine family, uh, I kind of thought of it as my dad's business, you know, the, the, what paid for my schooling and, and whatever things my father helped me with when I was younger, you know, then I went on my own. But um, it was kind of the family business. And, you know, um, I actually fell in love with wine after I had already decided to become a doctor, because my father asked me to go to France with him as his translator. And I had studied French in high school and I, I loved, you know, Camus and Sartre, you know, I, I was, I was obsessed with the, with some of these, these great philosophers and writers and I loved uh, French food. And, but, you know, I honestly, I didn't drink a lot of wine when I was 18. And so I started going with my, my dad. He, he basically said, Laurita, come with me as my translator. 
uh, he's very clever, my dad, you know, because he, he wasn't going to give up on me because I was going to be a doctor. And so I, I really fell in love with wine on these trips with my father, where we would taste and we would talk about the wines. And then I became passionate about our wines in Argentina. So while I was in med school, every time I would get a vacation, I would go home, taste the wines. And I would, you know, lecture people on, you know, you're, you're doing science incorrectly. I, I was so high on my own horse when I was in my 20s. I thought I knew everything. I mean, I think it's a, it's a common trend. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think my children, though, are more humble, which I, I, I appreciate. Um, but, you know, I would go to the winery and say, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And so my father was quite excited because he said, okay, well, she's interested. And so at one point, he asked me to go represent the winery at a wine tasting. I was in my residency at this point. Uh, I had to take, you know, exchange a couple of shifts in the hospital. That's when I realized that Argentine wine was unknown, that this project of my father's was impossible, that he was never going to put Argentine wine on the world map. And, and really, I started working for the family winery mostly to help my father and my country, you know, out of the same reason I wanted to be a doctor. But then I really fell in love with wine drinking, with wine culture. And, um, you know, now my, my new thing that I'm working on is uh, how to drink wine for life's enjoyment and for your health. Because I think there is a very, very scary uh, trend uh, in, you know, the politicians out there of anti-alcohol speech and there's all this, you know, cancer talk with alcohol, which is, uh, you know, for sure, there are some cancers that are increased by too much consumption of alcohol. And there are some very rare cancers like esophageal and oral cancers that can, uh, you know, the risk of them can slightly and very slightly increase uh, with uh, moderate drinking. But these cancers are much less likely to kill you than heart disease, mm. which is uh, you know, the risk of heart attacks is significantly decreased by, you know, the low daily or, you know, a couple of days a week consumption of uh, alcohol in moderation. So I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there, some of it coming from, you know, these credible doctor sources, which, which surprised me, you know, because I think that they're actually... Um, uh, I don't know, they're on some kind of a prohibitionist agenda. Uh, and I think that wine and, and, and alcohol gives so much pleasure. You know, a dinner without wine is so much less fun. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my, I, I, I'll tell you a very funny story. I, my husband and I were talking about this. He's also a doctor. And we had gone to dinner the night before and had a wonderful time. You know, usually we drink a bottle, I drink a third, he drinks two thirds. And, and this is a third of a bottle is too much for a woman to drink. But what I do is I drink it on that night. And then for two days, I don't drink any alcohol. So I, I you know, and, and this is actually okay. As long as you're having less than three to four glasses as a woman and less than four to five as a man, that's not binge drinking. So if you want to one night, share a bottle, just don't drink, do that every day. And so I asked my husband, I said, okay, so let's say that last night was a nine out of 10 for dinner because we had such a wonderful time. We had some Italian food. We had a, a you know, a, 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 a super Tuscan wine that was beautiful. And I said, let's say it was a nine out of 10 in terms of pleasure. Uh, what would it have been if we didn't have that bottle of wine? And my husband looked at me and said, a three. <laughs> and I said, really? That's so bad. I said, oh my God. So my company needed, you know, in order to be a, a nine, 
you know, it, you know, it's like Laura as the wife is worth three and the wine was worth six. But guess what? I agree with him. <laughs> yeah. I agree with him. I can see that. So, you know, so, right. And so anyhow, so, so this is a new topic that I'm very interested in because I think that as a doctor, I can make a very big difference. First of all, preaching moderation. I mean, certainly there's a lot of people in our world, even people who sell wine, who people at our winery, I am always talking about moderation to our staff, you know, because you have easy access to alcohol, you know, you're in the, in the wine trade. One has to always sort of moderate, you know, sometimes you go on a vacation, you drink too much, you come back, you say, I'm not going to drink for two weeks. I think that's something we must all do. But the pleasure of, of drinking is so great that I think that, that this prohibitionist agenda is, is only helpful if somebody has an alcoholism problem, they should stop, and I support that. But if you're able to control your drinking and drinking in moderation, I think it's one of the greatest life pleasures. It's, it's part of Western civilization. It's part of civilization in the world because there's some kind of spirit all over, you know, except for, for you know, some Muslim countries where there's very little drinking. But, you know, I think this is my next topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your next book, maybe. Yeah, I think you're <laughs> onto something uh, when you talk about the sort of uh, moral fervor, the prohibitionist uh, agenda, and uh, yes. especially in, uh, in the United States where you are now, because actually I'm sure yes, sugar does absolutely. a lot more harm to, uh, to, 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 yes, to, to, yes. to uh, many of us yes. than, than, than alcohol. Yes. But anyway, that's another matter yes. uh, because yes. Um, yes. We should, yes. there's so much to, to, to cover. Um, I mean, medicine, you, you, you were still, um, as recently as the pandemic, you were still um, a pediatric yes. doctor in yes. what we call A&E, yes. the, the emergency room, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I actually, I actually submitted my resignation in November of 2019 for my father's 80th birthday. I said, okay, your birthday present Papa, is that I will do all wine and I will just do volunteer doctoring. So I actually worked till the end of 19. Then we had the pandemic. I was doing pediatrics. I asked my boss at the hospitals, should I come back? And he, and basically the pediatric emergencies were empty because the kids weren't going to school. They weren't breaking bones and they weren't getting sick. So they actually needed fewer of me during the pandemic, but I did do a lot of vaccinating. And, uh, you know, after the first year passed and vaccines were available, a lot of vaccinating for, you know, homeless people, people living in, in precarious conditions. And that was really important because there was so much of this kind of anti-vaccine mm. talk, uh, which, I mean, I think some of the anti-vaccine arguments had some validity. So I'm not, you know, one of those people that you, you know, I'm, if you talk, if you're anti-vaccine, I can't talk to you. I can talk to anybody. Uh, and um, it was actually a, a really good way to get out there and, um, and you know, promote public health. But now I'm really full-time uh, making wine. And I don't know how I ever had time to be a doctor, honestly, David. Well, I, I, I was, as I said in the introduction, uh, the, the usual question is, I don't know how she does it or did it. But, uh, I mean, you're, um, you appear to be across everything in the business um which uh you you clearly uh, love to well, be very busy yeah well i, I tell you my, my husband always says that the the laura catina's method is to ignore her husband <laughs> that's and why you got a three that's why you got the three and not the nine you see <laughs> that's yeah, the three. Exactly. exactly if you want to get a three <laughs> over ten as a wife 
do multiple jobs like me exactly <laughs> but you are by any measure um a female pioneer and um, argentina rightly or wrongly has this quite macho image i think linked to the gaucho probably mm-hmm. but um you yeah. uh, have you um you've had a very supportive relationship obviously with your father but have you encountered yeah. um obstacles along the way from males well I would say that our winery, um, you know, it, we are so pro-female, you know, my father had this really strong mother, the school teacher, he has always hired women. But when I started, the, we didn't have that many women in high positions at the winery. That, that has been a, a, a big change that happened after I came. And what I find is, you know, they say that in order to attract more women, do you, you need to have women in your staff. And that is true. If a woman looks at a company and they see that there is no high level person that's a female. Well, they're going to be suspicious of you saying, yes, we have great opportunities for women because they say, well, if you have such great opportunities, why are there not more women in high level positions? And so I did um, have to, you know, hire more women and, and uh, promote women, but you know, I'm always looking for the best person for the job. Um, I just happened to, to meet a lot of great women. So so our winery right now has a lot of women in top positions. But to your question about did I face uh, any issues, you know, I came from medicine where today there's more female doctors than male doctors. So I came from a from a kind of work that was very egalitarian. Uh, You know, for sure, there's sexism in all worlds, but I came from that world. So when I came to the winery, I feel like perhaps there were things that happened that I didn't even notice, because I wasn't really looking for them. Uh, on the other hand, I have to say that I feel like in, in, in the world in general, in Latin America, in, in the business world, there is still, uh, uh, you know, a lot of domination by men in the sense that a lot of the high level positions in businesses in Latin America are for men. There's more men in high level positions, more ma- male CEOs, more male CFOs, more uh, leaders that are men. Uh, and and that to me is a problem because, you know, if we want to progress as a region, Latin America, uh, we need to incorporate more women because not only are women wonderful uh, workers, but there's a lot of literature that diverse groups where there's a better balance of men or women uh, make more money. You know, boards that have women, companies that have more women make more money. So when you get a diverse group, you think more creatively, um, you get the, the, you know, I don't know, the teams that are co-ed, I think do better work. And, and I find this at our winery. So I personally do not think I've had to struggle greatly because of this, you know, partly also because I came into the family as my father's daughter. And, you know, I, I really see that as a privilege that I, I wish to, I hope to never forget that, that, you know, I had a privilege that other people didn't have. Uh, and I'm very aware of that when I think of, of our staff that works at the winery that, you know, um, that I want to give people the opportunities they deserve. Uh, and if, if I ever get all these, uh, the, my nieces and nephews and my children to work at the winery, I, I hope that they will behave very well and, uh, and earn, um, you know, the respect of people for their hard work and, and not be spoiled family members. I, I don't think any of them will be because they're wonderful but uh, I'm very conscious of, um, you know, kind of having been handed this job as a family member and the privilege that 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 entails. 
And, and so I think that that has been harder for me than being a woman. You know, the fact that I've always been very conscious of, you know, my privilege within our, our organization and, and making sure that I don't abuse of that privilege. So uh, it's quite a, a gear change, admittedly, from uh, the uh, rather profound uh, discussion we've just had. Uh, but um, uh, you may know that uh, we always ask our guests on the drinking hour for their desert island wine. And uh, we have to ask you the same question. It can, of course, be uh, one of your own yeah. wines. I suspect it will be um, because you have some fantastic yeah. candidates for a desert island wine. So what would it be if you were stuck on a desert island? Uh, what would you have? Yes. So, so you know that we humans, we love scarcity. And we have a wine, the Nicolás Catina Zapata, named after my father, 1997. It's a Cabernet Malbec with more Cabernet. But it's a wine that was the first wine that kind of became the, the super Argentinian, you know, like the super Tuscan equivalent for Argentina. It, it became this wine that won blind tastings, that was the first Argentine wine to be collected by people. Uh, it ages beautifully. And the 1997 was the first vintage. My father approved of my plan to do blind tastings all over the world. We did some in UK, in the US. Um, and our wine came in first or second. And the other competitors were wines like, you know, Soraya, Opus One, Latour, Chateau Latour. And we came in first or second. And that wine we made in small volumes and we made a mistake and we shipped too much wine. So we were so excited that people wanted the wine that we were shipping the wine and we only have a few bottles left in the winery. And so we almost never opened them. And recently uh, at my niece's graduation from a school in Boston, our distributor in Massachusetts brought one of two bottles that he has of that wine. And again, like every other time I've had that wine, it's unbelievable. It's, you know, 1997. So it's, it's pretty old wine. But it's so alive, so beautiful. And I think that that will be the wine, just because it's a wine that I've enjoyed, you know, not too many times, but every time it has provided a magical moment. And um, yes, that would be the wine. It sounds like the perfect desert island wine. And I have to say, if I was stuck on a desert island and I could have a food item, uh, it would be uh, your uh, ground beef empanada. Uh, I love empanadas, but the empanadas we had after we'd planted those trees in the vineyard uh, on my recent visit were, um, without doubt, the best uh, empanadas I've ever had. So um, where do you get them? Who makes your empanadas? Well, they are made by the, the wife of the vineyard manager for that vineyard. And, you know, empanada recipes are handed down from, you know, grandmother to granddaughter, mother to daughter. And most of the time, people will only teach it the recipe within their family or they'll teach you part of it but won't give you the secret ingredient and uh, I I find that the best empanadas are usually made by somebody that is making it in their own home somewhere from one of these uh, you know inherited recipes one interesting thing for anybody going to Argentina is that each province has its own empanada recipe and if you're from one province you despise the other empanadas for example, in Chile or in the north of Argentina, they put raisins. And I do not like raisins in empanadas. In Mendoza, you often put olives and you put um, a boiled egg, which I love, and lots of onions. Really, most people will be so used to their own regional empanada that they will not like empanadas from somewhere else. And, 
you know, I'm even willing to have an empanada with raisins, but I would prefer not to. Well, there we go. I've learned something new. I didn't know uh, that about empanadas, those uh, regional variations. I've learned a lot from our chat and I know those uh, people listening will have done so as well. So it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Laura. Uh, thanks very much for uh, giving us an hour of your busy day for joining us uh, here on The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for having me. Gracias. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. And we round off as ever with a selection of medal winners from the IWSC. And this year, for the first time, around 500 wines are being judged in situ in Argentina itself. That is happening in early July. And I'm delighted to be uh, returning to Mendoza to be one of the judging panel. Uh, so we'll bring you news of those medal winners next month. But of course, Argentina also produces medal winning spirits too. And most notably, gin. Here are some of the uh, spirits winners from Argentina, starting with the gold. Spirit Santo won the top accolade, 95 points, a gold medal. Uh, the panel overseen by Joel Harrison, a regular here on The Drinking Hour, of course. Uh, this is a London dry gin at 43% uh, volume. Uh, here's what uh, Joel's panel said. A truly captivating gin, blessed with intense aromas of licorice, peppermint and dark chocolate. These evocative notes truly come alive on the palate with gorgeously brooding flavours of peppermint, cardamom, zesty citrus and a gloriously minty chocolate finish. Superb, they said. From the beautiful region of Patagonia comes this silver medal winning gin, Athos Gin, one 91 points. The judges said this. Typical gin notes with orange and lime, opal fruit sweets on the nose, combining with underlying juniper and creamy richness on the palate. Well-balanced and smooth, good integrated alcohol. It is also, by the way, a beautiful looking bottle, apothecary style with uh, lovely artwork as well. Another gin winner, this one also getting a silver medal, 90 points for La Salvaje del Litoral Crioja Gin. Uh, the judge's tasting note said this. A fresh nose of menthol, fennel and subtle earthy tones leads into a soft palate with plenty of green character and hints of sweet Sicily. A delightful example. Olivier Ward, uh, also a previous guest here talking gin on the drinking hour, was overseeing the judging process there. And the eye-catching malaria gin from Raven Clan Distillery also got a silver medal with 90 points uh, and also picked up a bronze medal in the G&T category as well. Here's the tasting note. Fresh citrus, celery and coriander leaf with lifted notes of jasmine, violet and red apple. Earthy and sherbet with bitter grass and tart lemon peel on a fresh pine finish. Sounds fabulous. And talking of finishes, that is it for this week's drinking hour. My thanks, of course, to Dr. Laura Catena for joining me from San Francisco. Uh, do look out uh, for the results of our in-situ Argentina judging, as I mentioned. You can find my wine column at clubonologique.com and you can follow us at either Club Onologique or Insta and Twitter or at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I am Mr. Venusaurus on both of those platforms, uh, if you fancy following me. Until next time, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits.
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.